Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. This morning our service will be uh, a little bit different as we hear testimonies of thanksgiving from members of our congregation before we hear a short communion meditation. Um, What I'm doing now is sharing a testimony of thanksgiving and a few others will be joining uh, me up here later to also share parts of their testimony and their thankfulness. So, I am thankful for God's character. I've learned about that through suffering. In 2013, I started to experience symptoms of Lyme disease, though that diagnosis wouldn't come for two and a half years. My knees began aching and swelling, and this prevented me from running, which had been a lifelong passion and outlet. But I was forced to move on from my grief over the loss of running and instead focus on things like how I would walk to class or stand in line at the cafeteria. I wanted desperately to serve the Lord with my life with overseas missions, but I couldn't stand long enough to brush my teeth at the sink. I ended up getting surgery on both of my knees thinking that it was the answer to my pain. Fatigue set in. I visited handfuls of doctors and still didn't find any answers. Finally, when I found a diagnosis of Lyme disease, it was actually a huge disappointment because I had put so much stock into finding an answer um, that when I started treatment, it only made me feel worse. My health was a deciding factor for me not to do an additional year of ministry with crew after I graduated and instead to look for more stationary work. Countless job and travel opportunities had to be turned down. The trajectory of my life has been really changed because of the nature of my limitations. The thought of if I'd be able to wake up and show up to my obligations in the morning has left me with many sleepless nights. The isolation and misunderstanding from others has been hurtful and confusing to navigate. I've prayed for healing. I've begged the Lord to heal me. So far, the answer has been no. I'm so thankful for this. I'm immensely thankful for this because I see that God is giving me opportunities to believe that he's enough for me, that he alone is enough for me despite my circumstances. My view of God and his character has grown as I've been forced to deal with questions like, have you forgotten about me? Do you care about me? Is this your best for me? Because this really hurts. I'm still grieved by all the things that I can't do, but now I'm not satisfied by God plus physical health and healing. God plus a career, plus a husband, a family, financial stability, the list goes on. I used to live thinking, if only I knew how long I'd have to go through this, it would be more manageable. I'd think maybe next year I'll get my life back. The Lord showed me that this way of thinking is faulty because it indicated I was only living for the cessation of my suffering. I want to encourage you all this morning. If you find yourself waiting for something or waiting for a painful season to end, don't wait to find your contentment in Jesus until your suffering has been alleviated. He's enough for you if you never see the end of your pain or waiting. I recently found out that my dad has stage four cancer. Finding out this news was like a punch to the gut. I couldn't stop shaking when I found out. I'm apprehensive about what'll happen to him But after years of accepting suffering that won't budge, this this news didn't make me want to shake my fists at God and question him. It made me want to trust him because he's been my only constant. I'm encouraged and thankful and heartened by the words of Romans 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained 
access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Thank you. I'm Jim Spiegel, and I'm the second in line to, to share some things I'm thankful about. And my original plan was to talk about the Chicago Cubs, but it's, it's a worship service, so um, I'll choose something a little more um, obviously biblical. Although, though, I, I do think that is something to be thankful for. Okay, I'll insert uh, my favorite baseball joke. Um, you know why God's... How, why we know that baseball is God's favorite game? Because the Bible says, in the big inning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, so um, Proverbs, Proverbs 17.6 says that children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. Um, I'm very thankful for parents and parenthood. Um, Theologically, I think about the fact that um, human procreation is probably the best image we have of the Trinity in human experience. Um, according to Orthodox Christian theology of the Trinity, the, the, the Son proceeds from the Father eternally. Two persons, same in essence, and from their union proceeds the Holy Spirit, again, eternally a third person, all the same essence, the divine essence. And, and this is imaged in human procreation with a father and a mother giving birth to a child, a third person who has the same human essence. It's, it's a very Trinitarian thing when you think about it. Powerful image of God, uh, the whole business of marriage and, and procreation. So I'm in particular, especially thankful for my parents. My mother passed about a month ago. She's a wonderful woman. Uh, and my dad, uh, great dad, just wonderful parents I had. Um, and my mother was a Christian. My dad was not a believer for most of his life. I, he came around in the end. Um, but they were both incredible models of integrity and Christian virtue. Um, that I was able to um, live in the midst of, and they taught me so many things. Um, and then uh, I inherited through marriage uh, some wonderful in-laws. My uh, wife, Amy, her, her parents, Lee and Joyce Bell, are just stalwart, solid, uh, salt-of-the-earth Christian people, very wise, and have just been models of Christian service in, in every domain um, my father-in-law in the business world and heading up a trust department at a major bank in Knoxville until he retired. My uh, mother-in-law, Joyce, who's just been uh, this fabulous servant in, in so many ways uh, to her family and to her church community and certainly to uh, her daughters and sons-in-law and now uh, they're uh, just wonderful grandparents, both Lee and Joyce to our kids and uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's kids. And then the blessing that um, Amy and I have to be parents to four 
wonderful kids. Uh, it is so uh, spiritually um, enriching and profound when you, you, you think about playing the role of the primary nurturer of these uh, souls that, that come to you um, without an instruction book, without a, a, um, a manual, you know. Um, when they send you home with your kids at the hospital, they, they, they give you your kid and you're, you're gone. And I remember Amy and I had this feeling of, of wonderment, bewilderment, and um, anxiety that, wow, they're actually letting us take Bailey home. Uh, we haven't passed any kind of tests. We haven't gone through any kind of training to be parents, and you know, it's a profound thing. And God blessed us with three more kids, and just to, to see uh, their growth in, in spite of our sin and, and failures, um, trying to raise our kids in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, it really is uh, uh, an instructive thing, both about the nature and, and, uh, and grace of the Lord, but also about your own sin, as you see your, your own failures kind of reflected back to you in the process of parenting. But you learn, in addition to those things, grace. Um, the grace that, you know, your, your spouse and yourself have to show one another um, and that you have to demonstrate to your kids and then hopefully your kids back towards you. What a blessing family is um, as a kind of um, stage or um, uh, setting for learning grace, learning about the, the nature of God, learning so many profound theological truths. Uh, so I thank the Lord for parenting and the way I've been blessed by my parents, by my in-laws, and uh, as a parent myself, and pray that uh, um, that will continue down the generations and that my kids will somehow be proud of us as parents and that their kids uh, will be proud of them and so on. It really is profound, so I'm thankful for that. Hi, um, I'm Sarah, and this is David Lowry, and we have been going to New Life since we were both college students, so about maybe 10 years now. And um, we're both on staff with crew on campus at Ball State, and we'd love to share with you a little bit about our story of finding reason to be thankful even though um, we were going through a season of loss. And so um, it was a little over three years ago that we found out that we were expecting our first child. And we were so excited to be parents for the first time. Um, we quickly started thinking through all of the things that would change in our life. But within a few weeks, we sadly lost that child. Um, we weren't, we were discouraged, we were sad, but we knew that miscarriage was pretty common. Um, so we, about six months later, decided to try again. Sadly, we got pregnant again and lost that child as well. About six months after that, we got pregnant again and lost that child as well. And so it was at this point that we decided that we were going to start finding out more answers. We'd done a lot of different tests and tried to figure out what the reason that we were losing children was. Um, they all came back with no answers. And so we finally went to a specialist, and we found out that... Um, David has something called a balanced translocation, which simply just means that his genes are in the wrong order, and it doesn't affect him at all, except for when trying to have children. 
And so a genetic counselor let us know that we had about a 50-50 chance of miscarrying with every pregnancy that we had. And so while we were really discouraged to find out that the reason that we were having multiple miscarriages was like the one reason that can't be fixed, can't be changed, um, we were also encouraged to find out that we had potentially a 50-50 chance of having a healthy pregnancy. And so about six months after that, we decided to try again to have a child. We got pregnant and a few weeks later had another miscarriage. And so um, walking through four miscarriages has been really difficult. It's really hard to you know, see your friends and family, enjoy their relationship with their kids and long to have that. Um, it's been hard for David to see me walk through the physical and emotional toll that four miscarriages takes on a person. And it's been really difficult for me to see David long to be a father and not be able to hold a child in his arms. While this has been so painful, we have found reason to be thankful, though. So David's going to share a little bit about that. Yeah, actually, I just want to share four points, four points of our thankfulness. And actually, we have far more than just four points to be thankful for. Uh, it might seem surprising after what Sarah has just shared, uh, but we are abundantly thankful for what God is doing in us and through us despite uh, painful circumstances. And so the first thing that we're incredibly thankful for is our utter dependence upon God. He has made it abundantly clear that not just in wanting to have children, but in all areas of life, that we are utterly dependent upon him. He's drawn us to his word. He's drawn us to our knees in prayer. And we're thankful uh, that in the midst of suffering and pain, uh, that we've had to cry out to the Lord and meet him in his word and in prayer to see who he is. Uh, we've also spent a lot of time just reading books by great uh, theologians and pastors on pain and suffering, and that's been incredibly edifying. Uh, please pull out your uh, pens, write this uh, down somewhere, or uh, take a note on, on your phone, but I would really exhort everyone to read Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering by Tim Keller. It's a wonderful book, uh, and whether or not you've gone through pain and suffering, uh, the Chances are, living in a fallen world, you will, but this book also speaks to how to care for people who are walking through pain and suffering, which is just incredibly helpful. The second thing that we're incredibly thankful for is that we have learned to hold loosely to the things of this world. We're thankful that God has created that in our hearts, that uh, the things of this world are fleeting, even though they're really good, gracious gifts from the Lord, like having children, having family, uh, that uh, we don't uh, look to our circumstances to find our joy. We look to our Savior to find our joy. Thirdly, God has knit Sarah and I together in a wonderful way throughout the past seven years of our marriage and specifically in the last three years as we've lost four children. I'm so <laughs> thankful for this wonderful, godly, sweet woman uh, she, she suffers well, and that is one of the most wonderful things that someone could have in a spouse. She runs after Jesus in the midst of heartache, and I, I am just continually impressed with her and thankful that God would bless us with marriage. Uh, and We don't deserve that great blessing, but I'm incredibly grateful for that. And finally, I am incredibly thankful for the longing that God has created in our hearts for our true home. We long for heaven 
We long for the day when God will redeem and renew and restore all things. And so a few verses that have been incredibly meaningful to me and to Sarah over the past few years are found in Revelation 21, and I'm gonna read verses 21 through 20, uh, one through four. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Sarah and I are incredibly thankful that this is a certainty that Jesus Christ has purchased for us on the cross and the rest of you who have faith in our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we're thankful today. You can open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 10. This is um, a little bit of an obscure passage, actually. I don't really hear it talked about very much in the common uh, Terry's that I looked at, it, not many of them gave really much attention to this passage. I'm not sure that I've ever heard a sermon on it. Um, and this sermon is not dealing directly with the thankfulness that we're supposed to give to God, but rather it deals with an attitude that we sometimes have, and that is that we sometimes expect thankfulness to be given to us. Um, we expect others to give us credit and maybe in some cases we even expect God to give us credit or even to give us thanks for the ways in which we serve him. Um, sometimes this attitude is called an entitlement mentality. Uh, there have been some who have talked about the entitlement generation. Uh, this attitude of entitlement is this way we kind of expect certain rights or benefits to be given to us without justification or without having earned them. Um, Calvin and Hobbes, you remember the uh, <clears throat> comic strip? Uh, here's uh, Calvin sitting here at his desk, and he says, this bad grade is lowering my self-esteem. And the teacher comes and says, well, then you should work harder to, so you don't get bad grades. And the third frame there, it's like, Calvin's never thought of that. <laughs> and then he says, your denial of my victimhood is lowering my self-esteem. This is a good example of uh, an entitlement mentality. Calvin expects to have a good grade without working for it. He's, he's easily offended when he doesn't get what he wants. These, these are some um, kind of markers of entitlement, thinking that you deserve things without working for them, um, expecting others to fix your problems, particularly problems that you've made, uh, an ongoing feeling of dissatisfaction and lack of contentment. You know, nothing is ever really good enough. Being quick to complain, um, refusing all kinds of criticism or suggestions for improvement, feeling often like you're mistreated and you're being cheated. These are all examples of an entitlement mentality. And here's the problem with an attitude of entitlement. The bigger your sense of entitlement, the smaller your sense of gratitude. 
The bigger your sense of entitlement, the smaller your sense of gratitude. And so that's what this passage is dealing with here in Luke 17. So please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read these three, four verses here for us. Luke 17, verse 7. These are the words of Jesus. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Father, Give us wisdom, insight by your spirit into this passage of scripture that we might leave here with hearts abounding in thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Two things I want to show you in this passage before we come to the table here briefly. The first thing is this. God in his sovereignty owes his servants absolutely nothing. That's the first point we get from this passage. God in his sovereignty owes his servants nothing. Kind of a, a blunt statement, but I mean, let's look at this. There are two people in this passage. One is the master and the other is the servant or the slave. And the passage begins here in verse 7 with the picture of a servant coming back home after he's been working in the fields all day and he comes in and Jesus imagines the servant coming in and sitting down at the table and kicking his feet up on the chair and putting his hands behind his head and saying what's for dinner and Jesus introduces this as a way of asking the disciples to whom he's talking he says how many of you have ever seen this happen and we don't get the answer but the implied answer is well we've never seen that happen because that doesn't happen. That's, that's an absurd picture. Here's what typically happens in verse 8. The master will say to the servant when he comes back in, prepare a meal for me, servant, then you can eat and drink yourself. Now, this would not have been unusual in this time because many slaveholders did not have the luxury of a multitude of slaves to do different kinds of work. So very often, these slaves would do the work in the field and they would be responsible for domestic chores like cooking dinner as well. So this would be somewhat common. And so this is what the master says. Servant, your meal, uh, your work is not done. Fix a meal for me. Now we get to verse 9 and it seems a little harsh actually, because after working all day long, perhaps in the hot sun, perhaps by himself, this servant comes back in, probably pretty hungry himself at the time, but nonetheless, he fixes the meal for the master, and does he get any thanks? Does he get any credit? Look at verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Now, again, the, the answer isn't given us, but, but it's implied. And the implied answer is no. He doesn't get any thanks, doesn't get any credit. I mean, that, he's done a lot, hasn't he? He's working all day, comes home and cooks dinner and doesn't even get thanked for it. Now, this seems harsh. It almost seems unjust. It's not unjust, and, and here's the reason why. Again, in verse 9, look what it says. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? 
So the implication here is that the commandments to the servant were made very clear. The master probably said to the slave in the morning, here's what you're going to do today. You're going to go out and you're going to take care of the sheep and you're going to plow the field. You're going to come home and you're going to fix me dinner. And then when you're done, you can have dinner. The directions were clear. The master's not adding anything. There's no injustice. Even though it seems a little harsh, we can't hold the master here guilty of any kind of injustice. He doesn't thank the servant. Then we get to verse 10, and Jesus makes his point. He says this, and he turns to the disciples, and he says, So, when you disciples have done all that you were commanded, he doesn't say when you have done a good deed, when, when, you, when you do one good thing for God. No, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, We've only done what was our duty. We've only done what was expected. We've only done what was commanded. Some of you know Elvis Presley. Uh, he, he was famous a long time ago. Maybe some of you don't know Elvis Presley, but he was like a household name in the 1950s. In the late 50s in particular, he, he was the most famous singer in America. And in 1957, Elvis Presley got drafted into the army. And here's what he said about this. He said, the army can do anything at once with me. Millions of other guys have been drafted, and I don't want to be treated any different than anyone else. Now, there's a guy who would have had a sense of entitlement, that he should receive some special treatment. But no, his attitude was, if I'm drafted into the army, I'm just simply there to do my duty just like everybody else. And that's the message that we're receiving here in this passage. Uh, when it says we are unworthy servants, we shouldn't see that word unworthy to mean that uh, the servants are worthless people. That's not what Jesus means. The word is probably better translated something like those to whom nothing is owed and no favor is due. So, what's the broader point here? It's this. If this master has the right to make such claims on his servants, how much more does God have the right to make such claims on you and on me? This tells us, friends, that when you apologize to someone after you've offended them, when you treat your brother and sister with respect and kindness, kids, when you clean up after yourself in the kitchen, when you maintain a life of sexual purity before marriage, when you get up out of bed in the middle of the night and get a glass of water for your spouse, when you wake up a little earlier on Sunday morning so you can get to Sunday school and come here and worship with us in the sanctuary, when you put your tithe money into the plate, when you go fill up somebody's gas tank who's needy and can't afford it, when you send a card to somebody who's struggling, when you visit somebody in the hospital, when you share the gospel with a friend, you're actually doing only what is your duty, only what is your responsibility as a creature accountable to God and as one redeemed for service to him. The fact is, even after obeying God in those ways, friends, God doesn't owe you anything for that. He doesn't owe you a raise. He doesn't owe you a happy marriage. 
He doesn't owe you a perfectly healthy body, and he doesn't owe you an A on your exam. Now, that's, that's kind of hard to hear. I can tell you it wasn't any fun to say, but would you agree that this is the message that we're receiving here in this parable? This servant works all day long and is not even entitled to receive thanks from this master. Now, let's not misunderstand this. This is not an excuse for you now to, to be rude to those in your household or, or to your roommates or friends. Um, you know, if somebody does something nice for you, you don't thank them and say, because I want to teach you a lesson and not being entitled. No, don't say that. Uh, really, the point of this passage is not so much our horizontal relationships with one another, but, but more our vertical relationship with God and the tendency we have to think that somehow God owes us when we're obedient to him. So that's the first point here. God in his sovereignty owes us nothing, and that stings, but there's another part to this. The second thing I want you to see is this. God in his grace gives his servants everything. God in his grace gives us everything. So first of all, some of you might be saying or asking, does this passage condone slavery? And the answer to that is, is no, it does not. Jesus is simply using an existing practice of the day and in his culture to make a point about something entirely different. There's nothing in this passage intended to make any commentary on slavery. So don't read too much into this. The passage is not about slavery. It's about entitlement. But at the same time, notice how cold and impersonal this relationship is between the master and the servant or the slave. I mean, these are not best friends forever, are they? They're not even eating together. The implication we get is that the master eats at one time, the servant eats later, they're eating at different times, they're eating in different places. And the reason that's significant is because one of the most powerful demonstrations of friendship and fellowship is eating together, having a meal with one another. That demonstrates reconciliation. It demonstrates relationship. This past weekend, not this weekend, but a week ago, we had a presbytery meeting in Columbus, Indiana. And um, the meeting was on a Friday afternoon, and we had a retreat for the guys in the presbytery on Friday night and Saturday morning. And I was very excited about the retreat because the guest speaker at the retreat was a guy named Dr. Dan Doriani, who happens to be my favorite professor from my time in seminary at Covenant Seminary. And just a few days before the retreat, I got an email saying, Bob, we'd like you to come to this special dinner. Um, and there's only so many people coming, and we'd like to have you come. And it sounded good, nice restaurant in downtown Columbus. And they added it, it will be paid for, taken care of, even better. But on top of that, the special guest will be Dr. Dan Doriani. He's going to be there at, at the dinner. So looking forward to that. So Friday night, I go to the restaurant, and I, I walk in and talk to some people. It's a buffet. I get my food and sit down at the table. And then I look to my right, and a guy comes and sets his food down right next to me. And who is it 
but Dr. Dan Doriani <laughs> sitting right next to me. And, and here's this guy who I'd always kind of felt, you know, kind of distant from. He's this big seminary professor. I'm this kind of, you know, mere student. And, and here I am eating with the man and hanging out with him and talking and conversing. And suddenly it wasn't like he was Dr. Dan Doriani. It was like he was my friend. I got to talk to him like a friend. In fact, he even told me I could call him Dan. So um, I had a hard time doing that, I, I have to say. But there was something encouraging about being on that kind of first-name basis uh, with a man of his stature. The Bible tells us this, that there was a time when once you and I were enemies of God. In fact, if you want to talk about entitlement, here's one thing we're all entitled to the wrath and condemnation of God. If you really want what you're entitled to, that's what you would get. But God, through the atoning work of Jesus Christ, has done a miraculous work in reconciling us to himself. And while it's true, masters and slaves and servants, they don't typically eat together, but the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ, the king of kings, eats with sinners, fellowships, with sinners, comes down and hangs out with sinners. Earlier in the book of Luke, chapter 12, there's another story where Jesus is using this master-servant um, metaphor to describe his second coming. And it says this in Luke 12, Jesus says, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. The master, when he comes again, blessed are the servants who are awake at that time. Truly I say to you, he, that is the master, will dress himself for service and have them, his servants, recline at the table and he will come and serve them. That's the picture of the gospel that we get. A master who serves his servants. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that remarkable? How has Jesus served us? Well, first and foremost, by laying down his life for us, by dying for us, shedding his blood for us, paying the penalty for our sins so that we can be reconciled to him. That's the gospel. But he has also served us by spreading out a table for us. And that's what this table is. It's the table of the Lord. And at this table, we come and we eat with Jesus. And we commune with him. And we receive the blessing and nourishment that he longs to give us through the elements here, the bread and the cup. This bread symbolizes the body of Christ. And this cup symbolizes the blood of Christ, broken on a cross, shed for your sins and for mine, so that we might be reconciled to him. Here's the best way to fight an, an entitlement mentality. It's to realize that in the gospel, you already have everything you need. Everything you really need, you, you already have. That's what I mean when I say God in his grace gives his servants everything. Paul talks about every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms that, that are ours in Christ. That, that is forgiveness of our sins. Removal of all of our shame. Removal of everything that you don't want to share with anybody else. In Jesus, it's washed away. The righteousness of Christ, the only thing that will make you able to stand before a holy God, freely given to you through faith, not through your works, but through faith. 
a filling of the Holy Spirit, the power of God in you so that you can live a transformed, new, and different life. Adoption into a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, a family that, yeah, has some troubles, but it's only going to get better, particularly when we get to glory and we fellowship with one another. This is the family that will never end. And you're adopted freely into that family. You have the scriptures that give you wisdom and direction. You want to hear God speak to you? Open your Bible, and the words of God are there for you to read and to understand. The promise of a resurrected body one day, when all of your illnesses and pains and weaknesses will be purged, and you will be raised again in glory to live for all eternity on a new earth. That's what I mean by everything. And that is given freely to you in the gospel.